Amen. Good evening, everyone. Uh, for those that don't know, my name is Chris Luke. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's always a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday night. Uh, a couple announcements as we get going, and I admit that the first one is a bit self-serving because I am responsible for making sure it happens. Uh, the chili cook-off is two weeks from Sunday, and we still need a lot more food. It is a safe bet to say we need about 15 or 20 more in each category, pot of chili, pot of soup, cornbread, or dessert. So uh, you don't have to bring food to come, but we do need a lot more food. So uh, shoot me your entries, chris at graceavan.org. The next thing is that this Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and there will be a member of the Life Ministry team coming to speak in most of the adult classes. Uh, they will also be interviewing members of the congregation, so you don't want to miss that. Uh, now then, turn to Luke chapter 2. So here we are already a couple few weeks removed from Christmas, and I thought our passage today was fitting because it is set a few weeks removed from the first Christmas, a few weeks after Jesus' birth. So Jesus is just over a month old, and his parents have brought him to the temple in order uh, to, you know, for the purification under the law, and we will pick up there, follow as I read. In Luke 2, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. And remember, this is the Word of God. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the, parent, uh, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you would take your word that you would minister it to your people. Lord, if there are those here that do not know you, I pray that you would add to the number on this day those who have been saved. God, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please grant me your strength and your peace. And I pray that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit uh, to know that you're with us, to listen to you, to, to hear you, so that we might better know your love for us and know uh, who we are in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is uh, Simeon. He's a devout believer. Maybe he's an old man. The text doesn't say. It does say that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
He was uh, expectantly waiting for that promised fulfillment of uh, the Messiah, the one who would come to comfort the people of Israel. It's uh, a promise that is throughout the, the prophets in the Old Testament, and again, pointing to the Messiah, the one through whom that everlasting hope and peace would come. It also says that the Spirit of God had revealed to Simeon that he would see the Christ, or Messiah, uh, before he died. So Simeon waited with great hope and expectation to meet the promised Messiah. Again, this is the Son of God, the King of kings that we're waiting for, the Savior of the world. And he understands something of this, understanding the prophecies about the Messiah. We don't know how long he waited. Maybe he waited for years, but we do know once he saw the Lord Jesus... Simeon knew that Jesus was the long-promised Messiah, he worshipped him, and he was content to die. So uh, what I want to focus on tonight is what Simeon said when he took Jesus up in his arms. There are two sides to what he said. We see uh, verses 29 to 32 and then verses 34 and 35. In verses 29 to 32, he is declaring the fact that Jesus is the Savior, Verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. Verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, by which he means both Jew and Gentile. Uh, He builds on that in verse 32. Verse 32, a light for revelation to Gentiles and to Israel. So he's saying that salvation in Jesus Christ is for the whole world, not just for Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles, not just the nation of Israel but salvation to all nations. So Joseph and Mary marvel at what Simeon has said. And you know, this isn't the first time they've heard such things. I mean, they've heard from the angel Gabriel by now. They've heard from the shepherds. Uh, But even as it is confirmed over and over again, it is no less amazing. And maybe even more so as they've had time to marinate in uh, the truth about who their son really is. So, uh, verses 29 to 32 are about the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Then in verses 34 and 35, uh, we see about how the salvation would be accomplished for His people and how it would be applied to His people. And that's really where I want us to camp out for the rest of our time, thinking about and applying what is said about Jesus in verses 34 and 35. So first, let's focus on Simeon's hint about how salvation in Jesus Christ would be accomplished. He's speaking to Mary. He doesn't tell her everything, but he does hint at the fact that uh, Jesus will accomplish salvation through great suffering. He is appointed for a sign that is opposed, the, the text says, and a sword will pierce through Mary's soul also. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus will be opposed, and not only will it be painful for him, it's going to be painful for his mother as well. So, fast forward 30 years to Jesus' ministry. He met opposition all along the way. And then he was arrested. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was mocked. He was unjustly condemned and ultimately crucified all while his mother watched. Simeon said, Mary, your son is the Savior of the world. 
but he will be opposed, and not only will it be painful for him, it's going to be painful also for you. So you can imagine Mary standing there, watching her son be crucified, I can't really imagine. Um, She had to be at the height of pain and confusion, not only because this is her baby boy, but I mean, what about all those things that the angel told me and, and the shepherds and Simeon told me? My son is the king of God's kingdom. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the savior of the world. Jesus, what about those things that you said yourself? Salvation? What's salvation? This sure doesn't look like salvation. But perhaps you remembered Simeon's words. He is the Savior, but he will be opposed, and it will be painful. And not only will it be painful for him, but also for you. And and the pain doesn't mean that he's not the Savior. That is how God's salvation would be accomplished. Jesus' death was the full and final payment for the sins of his people. He had to die, and not only to pay for sin, but also to conquer death. When Jesus rose from the grave, death died for God's people. Our salvation was accomplished through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, that may not have been the way that Jesus' followers, including his mother, expected it to happen, but that is precisely the way that God designed it to happen. And not only is death and resurrection the way that Jesus accomplished our salvation, it's also the way that it gets applied to us. So look at verse 34. Simeon said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Not rise and fall, but fall and rise. Like death and resurrection. So couple that with what he says in verse 35, that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. Jesus cuts, gets to the heart and convicts us of our sin. He exposes the wickedness that is in our hearts. So think about this. As the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed throughout Israel, what happened? Well, Peter preached the first Christian sermon at Pentecost, and Acts 2.37 says that when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. The sin in their hearts was revealed to them. They were deeply convicted over their sin, so that's the fall. And a few thousand were born again, raised to new life in Christ. That's the rise. And of course, we know that is not only the case for those in national Israel. This is what has happened throughout the world since that day. It's what Simeon said would happen. Both Jew and Gentile, Israel and all nations. The gospel goes out. We get convicted of sin. That's the fall. Then we repent. We turn to Jesus in whom we rise. That is what it looks like for people to become Christians. Our sin is exposed. We get humbled. And we turn to Christ, fall, and rise. But not only is this the pattern of conversion, it's also the pattern of our Christian growth as well. And not only 
the pattern of our growth as individuals, but also the way that the kingdom of God expands throughout the world. Fall and rise. So um, what I want us to do for the rest of our time is to think about a number of implications to this, about the fact that fall and rise is a pattern for conversion and for our growth and maturity in Christ as well as for kingdom expansion. First, let's think about uh, that initial confession of sin and repentance from sin in conversion. So in a group this size, there are bound to be those among us who are not truly converted. Uh, But our hope is, of course, that God has brought you to us into a church family um, to truly bring you to Christ. I would just say this. Do not be surprised by the fact that it's going to hurt. You will be brought low. We all get brought to the end of ourselves. You know, culturally, there is this widespread view that Jesus is just one of many options for therapy to make you feel better, which can make it shocking when we find ourselves completely out of sorts when we meet him. I love the way that Rosaria Butterfield describes her conversion. In a word, she calls it a train wreck. And you know what? If the Lord so blesses us, we will have more and more train wreck conversions in our midst. I don't say that to exalt sin, but um, if we really understand what happens when someone becomes a Christian, it's not like trying out a new diet, it's more like getting a new stomach. It's not a little makeover, it's a fundamental change at the core of who we are, and frankly, it hurts. When I became a Christian in college, it was devastating. The old Chris had to die, and, and I was still him at the time. It was wonderful, but it was also devastating. I mean, there were years of pretty intense darkness that led me up to that time in Christ. It was a fall and rise. And now, for those who are believers... We need to make ourselves at home in confession of sin and repentance from sin. Confession and repentance must be our lifestyle. You know, I've heard people say that as we grow as Christians, we sin less. And maybe there is a sense in which that is true in terms of the outward manifestations of our sin. But the reality is that as we mature in Christ, God peels back layer after layer of remaining sin. He exposes us more deeply at the heart level so that we actually grow more and more aware of our sin as we grow in Christ. So while it may be true, maybe, that we sin less if we're counting, it certainly doesn't amount to less sin in our own mind's eye. So I have an illustration, if I dare. Okay. Does it take a second to boot? Is it just that? Oh. All right. So, this is the Christian life. They told me to go slow.
Wait, I can't even do a stick figure. Um, this is, this is uh, our Christian life. And this is how it, it works out. Um, maybe we start over here, and, and as we grow, we learn more about who God is. So we're learning, you know, about God's holiness, just His character, who He is. And as we grow, we're learning more about who we are, um, our own sinfulness. Okay? Um, So what happens as we grow is we get over here and that chasm is bigger, right? God's holy. I'm a sinner. But, as we keep growing, um, the cross fills in the gap. Now, it's not that the cross gets any bigger, it just gets bigger in our own mind's eye. We understand our sin more. We understand who God is more. We understand the problem of our sin with the Holy God more and more and more and more, and yet we understand more and more God's love for us in Christ. Um, again, it's not that we're any more sinful. It's not that God is any more holy. It's just that we understand these things more and thus understand the lengths to which He has gone to save us. So, Jim Umhoff showed me that, by the way. But um, the point I'm trying to get at is that as we grow, we're actually more aware of our sin and more aware of God and more aware of His grace but one of the things is more aware of sin. We need to make our home in confession and repentance. But in order to really do that, we have to understand that fall and rise is the pattern in which our salvation gets worked out. One of the things that means is we need to inspect, uh, expect and embrace the fact that we are going to regularly be brought low. Just because it's hard doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It may be an indicator, in fact, that you're on the right track. But you may think, well, I just haven't seen any victory over these things. Well, victory may not come the way you think it does. Do you think that Mary and the disciples felt like Jesus was on the precipice of conquering the world when they were standing at the foot of the cross? I would say that you may be well on your way to victory in some of your darkest moments. Jesus was well on His way to victory when He was led like a lamb, silent, to the slaughter. Brought low and rendered powerless. He had the forces of darkness right where He wanted them. Fall and rise is how our salvation was accomplished And fall and rise is how our salvation gets applied throughout our lives until we finally see Jesus at the last. So as often as you are made aware of your sin, confess your sin to God, and He is faithful to forgive you. And if your sin has affected someone else, confess your sin to them too. 
They may or may not forgive you, but you can't control that. It's humiliating to confess sin, but that's by design. And in regard to repentance, truly turning away from our sin to Christ, we should regularly seek to repent and regularly seek God to give us the grace to repent. Those things go hand in hand. We need His grace. We need His strength to truly leave our sin. So repenting and asking for repentance. Here's an example in my life. It's going to make some of you very uncomfortable. I need a swig of water before we talk about it. Because it's going to make me uncomfortable too. But where we are in our day, I think we need to talk about it. And that is with sexual sin. So um, there was a, this is a problem in my life from as far back as I can remember. I began to act on those desires when I was in the single digits a lot more frequently when I discovered pornography in middle school, which, by the way, is late for kids nowadays, uh, pornography and sexual promiscuity through high school and college. Then I became a Christian, married a lovely Christian woman, happily ever after, never to struggle with any of that again. Wrong. I continued to turn to pornography early in our marriage until God crushed me with conviction and I could no longer go on that way. So now, on the one hand, I do not battle sexual sin anymore at the explicit action level, like pornography and, and sexual promiscuity. Uh, by God's grace, it's just not there anymore. It doesn't mean it couldn't be, but it isn't. And yet, at the desire level, there is a war raging. I have desires in the Holy Spirit uh, for purity and holiness and faithfulness, and I have deceitful desires of death in my flesh. There are times when I feel like I'm in a foxhole and I've got nowhere to go and there's enemy fire all around and, and the clips on my grenades are pulling themselves. Now, the nature of your sinful desires uh, and temptations and sins may not be the same. This is certainly not the only way I'm tempted. Uh, but for you, whether it's sexual immorality or anger or covetousness, you know, wanting someone else's wife or husband or just their life in general, whether it's jealousy or pride or the love of money, whether it's bitterness or grumbling and complaining, whatever it is, this is the best way I know how to tell you how to fight. Every single time that the thought enters your head, grab it by the throat and confess your sin to God. Seek repentance and ask for grace to repent. It may stir up past sin. You may have confessed it a hundred times. Confess it again. Or maybe it's not just at the thought level. Maybe you've fallen again. Confess your sins to God. He is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness every time because Jesus is enough. It's an every day, every hour, sometimes every minute affair. When your sin is in your mind's eye, take it captive, confess it to the Lord, and bask in the glories of His grace in Jesus Christ. Father, you love me, even though there is this wretchedness inside of me. Jesus, 
I believe you. You died for me. Holy Spirit, empower me and enable me to live a new life. Or maybe it's not particularly in regard to sin that you're struggling. I mean, there's always sin to struggle with, but um, maybe God has brought a trial into your life. Maybe it's an extended trial. It's overwhelming. It's humbling. It's rendered you powerless, making you utterly helpless and dependent by design. That's the way He grows and matures us. Fall and rise. Cling to the Lord in faith. He is with you. He will never leave you. He designed this trial especially for you, and He will see you through it. Related to this, another implication of the fact that our salvation is worked out in this pattern of fall and rise, this means that there is no such thing as meaningless suffering. In, the, in fact, in the hands of God, your worst times are often the most useful. For example, um, our brother Gary Bynum, who is a good friend of mine, Gary is a FedEx pilot. He's one of our elders. He just rolled off the session. He serves as a uh, leader of the Life MIT, which, is, which leads our congregation in defense of the unborn. Uh, by the way, you will, I think I mentioned this in the beginning, but you will see the Life MIT and the adult classes on Sunday. Gary also leads the board at Life Choices. Uh, Gary is a good brother, though he would want you to know that that goodness is all of God's grace. Gary is one of the most passionate advocates for the unborn that I know. But do you know how he got so passionate? He and his wife Lee went through uh, more than five miscarriages, the last being a stillborn at 21 weeks. And as Gary held his stillborn daughter, Miller Catherine, and saw how beautifully she was formed, how perfectly her eyes and her ears and her mouth and her nose and her fingers and her toes. And, and then he considered that uh, so many abortions happen right around that time at, at 21 weeks. And he made a promise to his daughter before he buried her that he would fight for life. Fall and rise. There's not an ounce of meaningless suffering. That doesn't mean that we see all the connections. In fact, I don't think we see most of the connections. But we can trust the Lord. He works all things for the good of those that love Him, and not only for the one who suffers, but He extends that good into the lives of others, as He has done with Gary and Lee. The last implication of fall and rise that I'll mention, in regard to the fact that fall and rise is a pattern for kingdom advance, God's kingdom cannot be stopped. The church has been hard-pressed throughout history but it just keeps growing and expanding. This is a truth we will need to hold dear more and more in the future. Even if we get to the place where all the odds are stacked against us in our culture, that day may indeed be coming. It may be coming uh, soon. It may get much worse. But remember, the great kingdoms of this world, they rise and they fall, but God's kingdom works just the opposite, fall and rise. That is why it is most urgent for us to make sure that our identities are firmly planted in the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of the United States of America. 
It's not that we shouldn't love our country and and hope and pray for her well-being. We absolutely should. But if she continues to rebel against God, it will not go well. The USA is not the first great world power. Most of the rest of them are a distant memory, a footnote in a textbook. The kingdoms of this world rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will never fail. We may fall, but in God's time, we will rise. Remember the disciples a couple days after Jesus died. Remember Mary, the confusion and the pain that she must have felt. But also remember what Simeon said, fall and rise. All the odds were stacked against Jesus. He grew up poor, he was opposed at every turn, and then he died and he was buried. Salvation? What salvation? They had gone home from the funeral. The grieving process was in full swing, but up from the grave, he rose again. Sin was slaughtered, death died, and now he stands in victory. The salvation of God's people was accomplished on the cross and is being applied with the same pattern. Fall and rise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We can't thank you enough. We can't hardly comprehend it as wonderful as this great salvation is. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your wisdom which is beyond this world. Thank you that you've opened our eyes to see. Please, God, give us strength for the journey. We're in dependence on you. We trust you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.